May the unseen forces grant that I see nothing but good. Cold, certainly. Difficult and dangerous, perhaps, but not impossible. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I've made him watch a bunch of more movies. We watched so many movies on this one, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's still June, so it is still Harryhausen month here at, uh, at the IMMP. And as we have in the past on Harryhausen month, we, we did this time group some movies together. We watched a Sultan's Treasure Room worth of movies this time. <laughs> My goodness. If only I had seen more. Memorized more, recorded it into my brain. We watched the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad trilogy. I have a question about that. Oh, yes? I mean, I understand. It's the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad trilogy, but... Is it really a trilogy if no one is the same except for Harryhausen and the director? Absolutely. Really? I love trilogies like this. I love trilogies <laughs> that are connected in this loose, thematic way. Uh, well, they weren't even directed by the same person. Yeah, they weren't directed by any... It was nothing but Harryhausen that connects these. Harryhausen and Harryhausen's perennial producer. Oh. Charles H. Schneer, who worked with Harryhausen on, on most of his movies. They were really the driving team. They, the two of them made this movie. They hired a director, not taking anything away from the directors who worked on this. But if you're a director on a Schneer and Harryhausen movie... You probably go in knowing this is not your movie. This is a set of films, though, where the first one is about the fact that he's done and he's not going to do much more. It's his seventh voyage. He's had this long time. And then the other ones don't acknowledge that and keep going. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am so used to having so much more consistency across movie franchises. I, 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 am, I am tainted by things like the MCU, I admit, where... Calling this a trilogy feels off. Just feels off. I don't even need them to actually have connected stories or anything else. I just need them to say, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he left two ports back. Then you're fine. You've acknowledged that the other one existed. I'm okay. Oh, you don't even do that. You want Sinbad to be more like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, of course, it's a different person, quote unquote, playing Sinbad each time because the previous Sinbad retired somewhere. Exactly. I like that, but I can kind of get away. I can kind of deal with that. I'm even fine with recasting. If you want to say, no, these are all the same Sinbad, fine. But you make Sinbad 2 reference, ah, I still wish I had that sword I used last time. Like, <laughs> nothing. Nothing. I really like the ambiguity of that, though. Like, these are, it makes them more fable-like to me. And I, I have a soft spot for fable-like stories in that these are stories of the great Sinbad and his brave crew and a beautiful damsel. We don't know which happened before which or how they fit together. They don't have to because each one is a story and the point is listening to this story. And every time he fights a skeleton, he'll be as surprised as the last time. <laughs> That's right. Who knows? Maybe this was the first skeleton he fought. So the three movies that we watched were The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And before any of you audience start questioning, no, the other two are not the eighth and the ninth, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you see, the, the creator went back 20 years later to create episodes one through six. And, <laughs> and people had mixed feelings the about Phantom that. Genie. <laughs> That's right. Now, the first one was The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which takes its character, of course, also takes its name from stories from Thousand and One Nights. But this movie, it really does not take its story from The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad from A Thousand and One Nights. It was just a well-known title of a Sinbad tale from that collection. That was in 1958. 
that they made The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Starring Kerwin Matthews as Sinbad. And then, in 1973, Uh, they released The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Starring John Philip Law. And then, because The Golden Voyage of Sinbad was pretty successful, in 1977, they released Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. That one was directed by Sam Wanamaker. And starring Patrick Wayne. Now, Patrick Wayne, weirdly enough, we had seen another movie starring Patrick Wayne just days before we sat down to watch Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Oh, which film? It was on Mystery Science Theater. Oh, yes! Beyond Atlantis. Yes! Oh, I forgot about that. Okay, this is a Patreon side moment for just one second. I need to know whatever this thing called Tic-Tac-Doe is, because it keeps popping up on the guy's Wikipedia page, and nothing... Oh, goodness, it's it's a game show Tic-Tac-Toe for money. Oh, sounds like we might need to watch some game shows for Patreon bonuses. We might have to, because... <laughs> It, it it pops up as like one of Patrick Wayne's starring achievements multiple times. It seems he's he made a number of movies, but I think I mean he was a son of of John Wayne. Grew up in Hollywood. I have a feeling that a lot of his career was the the celebrity of being famous for being famous. But he did make a number of movies and some TV, I believe. Okay, but all I know him from now is Beyond Atlantis and. Uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. That works. And that's another thing that kind of disconnects these three movies as a trilogy, is the very long gap between the first and then the the second and third. It's a huge gap, and ironically enough, Harryhausen's style, staying consistent across them, does give them a cohesion. It does make this... It's like you kind of know what you're getting into. It... Having that long distance of cinematography shifting a little around it means it's easier to pinpoint what makes Harryhausen work feel. Not just look, what a look of a Harryhausen work is. The feel of a Harryhausen work is more noticeable when all of the other things around it are moving a little across these. I like like that. It's like what stays still. You can tell the core. And your reference to the feel of a Harryhausen movie, I think, is so right, because the physical nature of the effects that he created, really, it does seem like a feeling, not just a look. Mm-hmm. It, it makes the movies feel a certain way. And you can tell that the movie from 1958 was shot at a different time with different technologies, different approaches to filmmaking than the ones in the 70s, and yet they feel that in that consistent way, because they are Harryhausen movies. Maybe it's just my reference points in terms of the media I know, but there's something about Harryhausen works that are the most video game-like in movies I ever find, because there's times when your character will get to something, and the entire scene will shift in order to be prepared for the next display here. Mm. And there's something very, like, walking around the open level until you hit the trigger point that will start up a cutscene or begin a boss fight kind of feeling to Harry has and stuff. That's just how my mind interprets it. But I love that because a lot of other things don't do that well. And I still get that same like tension curve out of Harryhausen's work as I do in a good game like that. That's interesting. And it's a little bit ironic because what I've heard is that Harryhausen, not a fan of CGI in movies. Not a fan of the kinds of effects that took over from the physical stop motion effects that he created and loved. And that's typically, you know, you're going to have some resistance to whatever's taking over what you've, the craft you've perfected over decades. But, but you're right. There are ways in which he had similar things that he had to do as a filmmaker, as an effects creator, to what had to be done in video games and the like, in terms of preparing to fit this into the narrative and into the visuals. It makes me think that if someone's going to make a a Legend of Zelda story as a a movie, you'd be very, very well 
it'd be a great idea to sit down with a bunch of Harryhausen works and get a feeling for how you do that dramatic reveal of a creature and a and a fight against it. Because even if you aren't going to use the same method of creating the monster, you should follow that pattern of how you approach putting it on screen. I trust Wes Anderson to do that when he goes to make the Zelda movie that I really want him to make. What did you just do to my brain? A Wes Anderson Legend of Zelda movie? A giant cutaway dungeon. (laughs) You've just submitted the idea of a giant cutaway dungeon scene. I don't know what to think anymore. (laughs) I'm melting here. What have you done? We're going to have to go back and make a list of all of the the movies that we have declared that Wes Anderson should make as we've made this podcast over the last four years. But but yeah, I, I want Wes Anderson's Legend of Zelda with Ray Harryhausen-inspired special effects. I mean, I would have expected you to say Animal Crossing for him, and now I'm trying to think <gasps> of what terrifyingly high-action octane director you need to do an Animal Crossing film instead. <laughs> From the team that brought you the Fast and Furious comes Isabel, Just an Animal Crossing story. <laughs> Justin Lin's Animal Crossing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That works. It works too well. Uh, and all three movies were shot using Dynamation, Dynamation. which is their, their trade name for uh, Ray Harryhausen's method of creating these movies with the multiple composites and the mixing of live action and stop motion. Every time I learn more about Dynamation, it seems more and more like the the technique that Douglas Trumbull was trying to create and perfect for the Star Lost and and didn't. That moving green screen live matting kind of situation. Now, I think he was trying to do it, Trumbull was trying to do it much more quickly, much more cheaply, kind of live on a TV budget. But still, what it was trying to achieve, I think, is very similar to what Harryhausen was achieving decades earlier in, in movies like the seventh voyage of Sinbad. Yeah, he's kind of trying. Trumbull was trying to make a a portable pocket dynamation in that sense. Now, I don't know that we need to go through each one of these three movies in detail. Uh, yeah, when, once we've got this much content, we can't really condense it down the way we usually do. We can summarize the the movies of. Sin- uh, may I try? Please. Uh, Sinbad gets tricked by wizard. Freeze, small genie, size-changing shenanigans. Huh. Yeah, those those are all elements that that are contained here. Okay. No, that's on first movie. Oh, oh, I was I was trying to think of a summary that would apply to any of the movies. But yeah, go ahead. What's your summary okay. of, of two and three? Movie two, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Sinbad gets tricked by wizard. Freeze ancient knowledge. Pokemon fight ensues. <laughs> and the third movie, Sinbad gets tricked by Evil Witch Lady. Uh Oh wait, no, I got I got that wrong. Did I? Yeah, Witch Lady was in the third. Yeah. Witch Lady was in the third. Okay, that's right. No, I got my I got my middle thing wrong. The Guardian of the Shrine was from the third movie. That was the ancient knowledge. Oh, oh, got it. Well, there, I thought you were talking about the map that they had to, uh, oh. to get in the second movie. See, there's a lot of overlap. It's there's a lot of overlap. Straight. I had an entire <laughs> bit planned. Okay, now my failure to do the bit I had planned has become the bit. These movies are blending together in my brain. I can't keep them straight. The second one is the one where the guy falls into the into the the jacuzzi. Yes. <laughs> It's a the magic jacuzzi. The right. magic jacuzzi. It has underlighting effects in everything. In all three of them, magician creates problem. Sinbad and his crew have to sail to some difficult far off place to solve the magician's problem or to get the magician to solve the problem. They fight various giant monsters, including, of course, skeletons. They watch giant monsters fight each other and they succeed and 
there is a beautiful woman who is either the person who is jeopardized by the the magician's scheme or is a family member to someone who is um, jeopardized by the magician's scheme or who has some special power or destiny that makes her instrumental to solving the problem. And yeah. in every one of them, Sinbad either already is madly in love with this woman and going to be marrying her or falls in love with her over the course of the movie. Yeah. Movies one and three start with Sinbad to meet or marry the love of his life to whom he is, is uh, engaged or about to become engaged. In the second, he doesn't have a woman at the beginning, but he meets a slave girl who is prominently figured in one of his dreams about the problem that's going on. So he buys her freedom and takes her with him on the adventure. We can't really, like, we can kind of summarize down these movies. I want to do something. I want to compare our Sinbads. Yes, I've got a whole list of things that we should compare. Okay. The first of them is the Sinbads. How do you feel about these three different Sinbads? Okay, interestingly enough, the on-screen charisma of your Sinbad is oppositely proportional to how memorable the rest of his crew is. Hmm. In the first one, he is pure action swashbuckler. He is absolutely like, huzzah, I'm here. I know how to deal with that. I can do it. He is, he's absolutely that kind of action figure character, you yeah. think. The strong-jawed 50s movie hero could have been a Western, could have been a medieval movie. Here it happens to be an Arabic adventure sorcery tale. Same kind of character. And his crew, honestly... Outside of his like first mate, it doesn't do much. <laughs> they are kind of generic in the background. The second movie, he is absolutely the lead singer in a band. <laughs> yes. But everyone else in this movie, which the second film is remarkably, rem it gives off su such massive docudrama about the, the rise and fall of a music group. <laughs> this absolutely has a the band on a road trip going on tour kind of feel. Sinbad behind the music. Exactly. Sinbad is absolutely the lead singer, but everyone else gets little scenes to be about the fact that they're getting dragged <laughs> around by this lead singer and none of them are quite happy to be there. <laughs> the second line in my notes about that movie, Prague Rock Band. Yes. Sinbad is frontman. His buddy Rashid is the bassist. Yes, absolutely. And Rashid, he's a good first mate, best friend kind of character. Oh, yeah. They even pick up a very, very lazy drummer on the way. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, Haroon, who is in that second movie, he's fun. He is the, um, uh, the son of a merchant, and the merchant is paying Sinbad to take this kid off his hands and give him something to do, take him on this voyage. The third movie is honestly, he is not the greatest Sinbad. I'm sorry. That's the Patrick Wayne version. Patrick Wayne, you're not the greatest Sinbad. This is a little bit too much, you know, your Uber Eats driver Sinbad will be arriving in X <laughs> amount of minutes. He's kind of there to bring a bunch of other characters to places so that they can be <laughs> kooky where they're going. Yeah, he is not the most memorable of all the characters. no. He's kind of actually the straight man of the group who who has a job and is competent enough at the job to look at everything else everyone is getting into and go, what? I can fight that thing, sure, but why is it here? It's like, oh, I leave you alone for five minutes and you've invented a giant bee. Why? Why am I fighting a giant bee? Why is this on my ship? Please explain. Because Harryhausen likes giant insects and the way that they look in his stop motion. Absolutely. <laughs> Though this is not quite as big and terrifying as the one from Mysterious Island. No, and the Mysterious Island was explained and had a good reason to be there. This one was made out of pure <laughs> incompetence. Yeah, the good magician... Wants to test this potion that apparently the evil magician was using to change things in size. So what? how did he decide to test it? He decided to give it to a bee or a hornet or whatever it was. Yeah. Why don't you, like, test it on something that doesn't have a giant kill-you stick on its back? Yes. 
I mean, take a kitten. Make a slightly larger kitten. Oh, e- gosh, no. Oh, you've got a good point. That's <laughs> <laughs> You want a house cat to be suddenly bigger than the people in the house? We're, de- we're doomed. Oh, no, you're right. <laughs> First of all, everything at every height is going to be pushed off every flat surface. <laughs> and next, you know, you better be quick with those treats or else. Oh, you've got a, you've got a very good point. I'm just thinking fluffy cat. No, that's dangerous. That is, that is creature with yeah. murder sticks all on its hands. <laughs> a cocker spaniel? Yeah, he's just going to be big and happy. <laughs> but you can't go with a tiny dog. No, 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 no. That's a problem. No, no, no. Then, then you've got to th- get something that already goes woof or borf. No thing, nothing that goes yap. <laughs> but yeah, he, he certainly could have found something that was less dangerous than giving it to a stinging insect yes. as a test. Oh, while he stands there and uses the uh, and and keeps the known hypnotist trapped in a glass cage, <laughs> it's like that's that's not helping. Well, that brings up another thing. Well, first of all, before we move along, do you want to tell me what is your favorite of the three Sinbads? As much as the first Sinbad was the action hero I expected to sit down and watch, the second Sinbad is a guy who, when he gets knocked down, you can cheer as much as when he gets up and fights well. I kind of liked the second movies better. I kind of liked Golden Voyage's Sinbad the best. Me too. I liked that Sinbad the best with a very strong showing by the first Sinbad from 58. Yeah. He wasn't as 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 unique and noteworthy as the Sinbad from uh, Golden Voyage. So yeah, that's, that's my favorite as well as Golden Voyage of Sinbad. But we started talking about the magic and things. So how do you feel about the villains? Okay, so our first villain is, they literally catch him trying to rob a Cyclops, and he convinces them all to go back and help him finish robbing a Cyclops. He is not that great. The second movie's villain is also kind of weird. <laughs> and the second villain's uh, uh, second movie's villain, evil magician, is played by Tom Baker it, it of Doctor is. Who fame. It's Tom Baker, and it's Tom Baker, like kind of just using hand waving and being smug to cause things <laughs> to explode and and do his bidding. And this is a good t- point at which to mention: in all of these movies, we're talking movies made in the fifties through the seventies. I believe they were British American co-productions set in a mythical Middle Eastern Arabic culture. There is some regrettable brown face in these movies. There is points where the, what would have been just the native language of the people speaking in this time and place is identified as the foreign mystical chanting. It's like, yeah, I, we don't want to go, no need to go into that yeah. in too much detail, but it's, it's got all the cultural sensitivity you would expect from a movie with this setting made at that time. Yeah. But we've got Tom Baker as, as that evil magician in the second movie. Who is honestly the most competently evil magician. <laughs> like, the first guy is running around kind of... The first guy reminded me of a Skyrim character. He's running into a cave, he's looting things, and he's running out of the cave and ignoring half of the things trying to kill him sometimes. And he was very much a con man. He, Oh, yeah. He, he kept trying to pull a fast one on, uh, on Sinbad. Sinbad takes him back to Baghdad, where Sinbad is supposed to get married to, to the love of his life. And on the eve of their wedding, the evil magician shrinks... Sinbad's betrothed to doll-sized, and then says, well, I can fix this if I had ingredients that we can only get on that island we were on before that you've refused to take me back to because of the giant cyclops. Ah, boy. Without ever, of course, admitting that he's the one who shrunk the princess. Of course not. Um, Whereas Tom Baker, it was just, there is a thing it should be mine. I'm going to get it. He's not trying to trick somebody else into giving him a ride. No, but honestly, the the evil witch lady in the third was probably the best villain just because she had. I mean, her magic was ridiculous. 
but she actually had like a reason to try to be evil that they explain. And she seemed to have the most, the most fun doing it. (laughs) The first guy was desperate and Tom Baker's bad guy was just egotistical, but she actually seemed to have like, Ooh, yay. I get to do, (laughs) I get to make evil things happen. Yay. And the guy in the first movie, he wanted the genie's lamp and, and all of it, the power that it represented. The guy in the second movie wanted these powers of eternal youth and invulnerability and invisibility and all these things the magic fountain was going to give if you gathered the right things to feed it. She wanted power and status for her son. Yeah. She was the, the widow and second wife of the sultan who had just or the caliph who had just passed away and uh, and unless his his first if if the the first son who was not hers wasn't crowned within a certain number of months then the second son her son would uh, would take over and so she turned the first son into a monkey into a baboon excuse me yes yeah that's the thing it's like it's like the other two are pu- like there's something very like okay, I can understand what you're doing. She's like, allow me to allow me to court politics via transformation magic <laughs> and the creation of giant brass golems. It's like that's actually kind of cool. I like you better as a villain for being at least interesting. You can hold a scene on your own more so than the others. How do you think about the way that magic was portrayed in the three different movies? Well, let's see. We've got. The first one, he had kind of an entire apothecary shop going on. Yeah. A a lot of jars, a lot of mixing, a lot of the same smoke effect, and a giant, I I can only describe it as a tanning bed needed to restore (laughs) someone to to their actual size when shrunken. Tom Baker's is a little bit more flashy in some ways. He's got a lot more like point and explode and a lot more like, Oh, that thing comes to life now. Whoop. And Tom Baker's was a very dark view of magic. The yeah. first guy, you're right, it was a very potion and smoke bomb based, very knowledge based kind of magic. Tom Baker's, it was a raw, visceral. He had to give blood every time he wanted to do magic. Every time he used magic of any kind, it drained years from his life. And you can see Tom Baker, the makeup that they're using, aging him. By decades, by the end of the movie, he was like putting it all on the line because one of the rewards he would get if he succeeded was eternal youth. But in the meantime, he was literally having his life drained away by this magic he was using. To use D&D terms, we've got a wizard, the studied magician, a warlock, who is a you know given magic by something else out there. And and the third one, she's kind of actually more a a bard, and her son is an artificer because they're kind of <laughs> making things and going around just using bits of the magic they've got. She's using a potion to grow things or shrink things. She's using it as like the way to start up a mechanical heart, but you've got to build and bake an entire mechanical man first. <laughs> and then like jumpstart the engine and put it inside. Yeah. It is a very physical and physical mechanical kind of magic they're using in, in a way that is even more, more so than the first guy's potions and yeah, such. The first guy would make a magical potion, but the entire potion is magical. And the second guy would make something happen, but it cost him something. Hers cost him her something, but you could probably take the magical part out of whatever she made and you'd still have something she could hit you with. And she had shape changing magic. She changed the, her, her son's rival into a baboon, changed herself into a bird so she could go spy on things or changed her size. But yeah, the biggest piece of magic they do, you mentioned is the Minotaur. Minotaur. Bronze Minotaur with a, a clockwork heart that her son made and that they animated by magic. And 
most of his throughout most of the movie he's just a magical outboard motor <laughs> yes, he, is a, he absolutely is a magical evan rude because he's rowing the, the the metal boat that they're using to pursue um uh per, to pursue sinbad he's rowing it very well he's turning one crank and moving six oars but still that's a lot of work to create something to make make your boat move yeah and i was I that's the real disappointment for me is that we never really see him fight anything. We see him spear a few uh, sailors whose boat was rammed by the metal boat and were stranded in the water. But they set this up. You just know there's going to be a big fight between Sinbad and his crew and the Minotaur, and we never get it. We the last thing he it. does is open a door to this third act or to the final act. Yeah. <sighs> I did love Minotaur, though. <laughs> I, I will give Tom Baker, uh, Magician, one thing. When he summons an evil creature, we do get the rare instance of uh, Claymation, or Harryhausen animated uh, Sinbad, when Sinbad has to jump on a creature's back and fight it. That was pretty cool. His magic resulted in some very awesome scenes, but I liked her magic the most. There are some bits of the the Tom Baker magic with his homunculus where they use the claymation and such. It reminded me of the 20 million miles to Earth uh, Mm. that we watched last year for Harryhausen Month with the creature from Venus that we got to see grow and it's walking around on the guy's table for a while. Oh, yeah. It had a similar kind of feel to that in some ways. And I like it. It is good. But yeah, I, I liked... Tom Baker's ma- magician is is evil sorcerer, uh, the best of the three. Okay, but the others they each had something going for them. That makes sense. And you're talking about D and D. I I did when I first saw this movie. Tried to construct for a homebrew RPG a magic system based on what I saw in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Oh goodness! With this draining of life force and this trade off of magic and and your 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 racing against the clock if you're trying to use powerful magic. It was fun. I think I got somewhere. I realized that it was never really going to be of any use unless a player decided to have a player character using this kind of magic, and I never had a player interested in that kind of magic. Oh. But I don't know. It would be a fun way to build that into an RPG. It would be. So we mentioned that each of the movies had a damsel, had a lady who, uh, uh, in two cases... Sinbad was already in love with and was going to marry. In one case, gave her gave her, her freedom and, and seemed to fall in love with her over the course of the movie. How do you feel about those three? Mm. Okay. Best damsel is the first one. It's the princess who gets shrunk tiny. Because everyone else is a little they're a little bit more generic. They're they're shocked and awed. They they're they're participating in stuff, but they're not as active characters she was just like nope i'm here i'm doing things she even gets an action scene towards the end herself (laughs) in some ways her 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 character was a very 50s kind of character yeah and yet the way that she was written into the story and the fact that she was a tiny person for most of the story and could go places other people couldn't and things it it lent it gave her a role in the story that she wouldn't have had were she just someone to be rescued or protected. Yeah, the the princess in the third movie is honestly there to exposition a lot. <laughs> and in the second film, the, the 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 band goes on a road trip film, she's she's important at the end, but she's almost more MacGuffin like in that sense. In terms of her utility, she's an object to be unfortunately used during one scene to get them out of a jam instead of being treated as much like a, a an autonomous character as I think she could have been. Now, in terms of who played these, in the first movie, it was Catherine Grant playing the princess yeah, Parisia. In the second movie, it was Caroline Monroe who was in so many fantasy and science fiction and horror movies in the the 70s and in a movie that we've seen previously for the podcast. 
Spy Who Loved Me? That's right. She yes. was the, the, the bad guy's helicopter pilot, I believe. Yes. Not the, the Russian agent that, uh, that Bond was working with, but, but one of the- I'm bit. pulling up the cast list. Naomi, <laughs> that's it. Yes. Yes. So, and I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of Caroline Monroe. Yeah, it looks like she's going to pop up more. <laughs> if, we, if we ever watch some of the, um, the Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, adaptations from the, the 70s, she'll show up in at least some of those. And then in the third movie, Princess Farah was played by Jane Seymour. And we've seen her in a previous movie for the podcast as well. Oh, okay. Which one is that? She starred in Somewhere in Time. <gasps> oh! <laughs> a different kind of role, huh? Very different. Oh my goodness, that was her. <laughs> yep. Oh, ha! oh, wow. So, I think all three of them were great. All three of them had Interesting kinds of characters. Uh, Jane Seymour is just a terrific performer. This means we've got to watch something else with with Catherine Crosby in it. I think we will have to. Okay. I think she was in Anatomy of a Murder. We yes, might have to watch was. that at some point. Um, but yeah, as far as the character and, and their role in the story, I think that the princess from the first movie was the best. Yeah, I mean, she... It's a small part, but it's got a lot of impact. <laughs> uh, I had to go with that. I, the setup's right there. I had to go with that joke. What's that, that famous line? You know, there, there are no small roles, only small actors. Yes. Well, <laughs> well she had she, to be both. Like. I, well, she was just far away. <laughs> There's no small <laughs> roles. There's just really far away from the camera on a giant oversized pillow. They designed an entire separate soundstage to get one scene to work. Yeah, I'm glad we had these on the Blu-ray with all these extras because, yeah, there was some fascinating stuff they did for the size changing. Tangenting on the extras on the Blu-ray, they made an entire song for the first one, which is the most wild thing ever because it is the most tone-deaf thing to the movie <laughs> I've ever heard. I have never heard marketing that has obviously not watched the thing it's marketing that hard. Yes, the whole the song Sinbad may have been bad, but he's been good to me. This sultry, jazzy torch song about this scoundrel Sinbad. Meanwhile, the movie's all about what a brave and loyal hero he is devoted to his bride-to-be. These are different characters these in the different movie characters. versus it's, the song. It's wild. <laughs> it's like, they want you to play this in the theater in your lobby to promote the film. And it's like, that will just confuse your audience. What in the world? Okay. But yeah, the the bonus features are excellent because you wind up running into crazy stuff like that. Well, we talked previously about Sinbad's crew a bit. He always had a first mate who's who's kind of a sometimes a little comic relief, sometimes pointing out to Sinbad when he might not be doing the smartest thing. Any particular thoughts on, on those guys? Okay, uh first uh First movie is, uh, first mate is kind of a, a beleaguered guy at a, at a job. Uh, second movie's first mate is absolutely a ba the bassist of the band <laughs> and is absolutely starting to lose patience with Sinbad's, uh, craziness. Third movie's first mate is absolutely a is causing more chaos than anything else. He is part <laughs> of the problem, not the solution at times because he spends more of the movie actually antagonizing members of what's supposed to be Sinbad's group by not getting the point. It's like, <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. The prince got turned into the baboon, but baboon. Oh, come on, dude. F like that's an entire long scene where he's not getting it. <laughs> the prince is there writing on the walls, and his response is, wow, they taught it to write. It's like, no, you fool. <laughs> so then he writes, you know, I am Kasim. Like, it's like, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, like, I was expecting his the, his next reaction to be, they taught the baboon how to write, and they taught it how to lie. Exactly. It's like this is exactly how. Uh, how is this man the first mate? He is so <laughs> dense. So, award for best first mate goes to the second, <laughs> just because he could actually get the other two to fall in line. <laughs> Now, another category that changes from one movie to the next is their allies. Yes. They each have an ally, and yet I was trying to figure out who is that in the first movie. Oh, I know exactly who it is. Who's that? It's the genie. There you go. You're right. I was thinking, is it the magician? But no, he, not really. He's the bad guy still. You're right. The genie. How could I forget the genie? Okay. The genie in the first movie. I, I I will always be kind to child actors. They they're going through a lot. It's not easy. It's a difficult job, and you're expected to do it young here. Why does the genie in the first movie have absolutely the dead inside retail voice I have heard from coworkers at previous jobs? Like, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. He's just like I have been doing this. He he somehow captures, I've been doing this for so long, I'm no longer surprised with what any of you mortals try to come up with. <laughs> he is, he and is he's, fed up from square one, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and he's been living inside a lamp, getting to come out once every few years at best. Exactly. <laughs> he, he's got that down to a T. And there's just this, like, it's not... It's not being negative. It's not being mean to anyone who asks anything of him. It's just this, this like, he's got a thousand yard stare of a voice yes. somehow. I'm trying to be cheerful. I'm trying to be helpful, but I can't really fake enthusiasm about it. Exactly. And it's <laughs> brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And spoiler alert. I guess when he winds up getting to join the crew and leave on the boat at the end, there's absolutely a, Oh, sweet. I can love the job again. It's like, <laughs> That's right. He's, he's freed from the lamp. He's freed from the lamp. And he's just like, I can out swashbuckle you. I've got the experience, but I've got energy. <laughs> and there is that great scene where the t- tiny princess gets to visit him inside the lamp. Oh, yeah. Because they don't know the magic words to get him out of the lamp, but they need some information. And that is is a fun scene, because it's interestingly shot, it's fun to see those characters interact, and it's fun to see the genie react to something that has, like, never happened before. There's a beautiful lady who's come and visited me visiting me in the lamp. No no one (laughs) comes here. I go there. What do you mean you're here? What, who's it? Who's the? Okay, that's the thing, though. I can figure out who's the ally for the third film. Who's the ally for the second? I think the vizier. Oh, he's kind of the he. The vizier is the like rightful owner of the magical oh. items that need to be collected and that Tom Baker's sorcerer oh, wants. The guy in the mask that reminds me of the kid with the golden mask from that from the Arthurian movie. Yeah, Excalibur. Yeah, he reminds me of the outfit from Excalibur, and he just immediately was like, I don't trust you because of that. I'm sorry, that kid ruined it. Yeah, there is that sense of this guy who's been in a mask all the time. You're expecting some reveal that's going to be dramatic and and, and sharp, and he's not going to be what you expect. But yeah, he turns talk, out. Yeah, talk about another thing that makes me think Legend of Zelda. <laughs> and what he said at the beginning turns out apparently to have been true in that he what the 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 magical fireball that helped obscure a lot of the knowledge they need to go and find also burned away his face, so he wears this golden mask all the time. Yeah. And in the end, he gets restored, and everything gets put back right, and he's actually able to keep up with Sinbad overall. He he kind of feels like a, a secondary hero character in that sense. Yeah, yeah, he is the um, the patron slash partner of the hero. Yeah. I was about to say the word the knuckles to Sinbad's Sonic, and I feel weird <laughs> for thinking that. Now I've made all of you think it too. Yeah, now I can't unhear that. <laughs> 
And in the uh, in the third movie, it was the Greek wise man and person of knowledge and magic, Melanthius. Melanthius is the genie grown up, and you cannot convince me otherwise. They have the same chaotic energy. <laughs> and uh, Melanthius, played by Patrick Troughton, another Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Another Doctor Who connection here. But yeah, he was a kind of absent-minded but very knowledgeable sorcerer. And his name and, and, and other things about this remind me, in the third movie, there was a lot of pulling in Greek names and Greek islands and Greek influence. Yeah. It was as if the Arab world was the world of of wealth and practical knowledge and commerce and brave men and women and anything weird and magical and strange had connections to the Hellenic world, to Greek. I, I must admit, there's also a little bit of that going on in the second film with some of its design elements, with the mask and a few of its temples and such. It's almost like, it's almost like in between making the first Sinbad movie in uh, 58 and making the second in uh, 73, someone in, I don't know, 63 had gone and made an entire Jason and the Argonauts film <laughs> and suddenly was using a lot of other reference from a completely other set of mythology Fair enough. that they'd spent a while modeling into clay and were then putting into all their other stuff. That is a fair point. Even if they didn't pull in those Greek references in the screenplay for the second movie, it sure was there in the design. Yeah, I think that Harryhausen was... Had had shifted a little by the time he was doing this again. And a cute bit in the, the third movie was the fact that Melanthius also had a daughter who was his assistant. And she winds up falling in love with Kasim, even though Kasim spends most of the movie as a baboon. Yeah. She can kind of, he, he re re responded to her as he became more and more animal-like and stopped playing chess. Became He responded to her better and better, and she kind of could see the kind human heart and apparently that survived after he became a, a handsome man again. I, apparently. I didn't expect the watch out, he'll attack your hand if you try to pet him scene to be cute like that. <laughs> like everyone else, it's like, oh no, he'll, he'll bite your finger off. Her. Oh, I can pet him. Everyone. Wait, what? Okay. <laughs> so how do you feel about the monsters? It's not uh, a Harryhausen movie without monsters. It's They've not a Harryhausen movie without monsters. And I'm trying to think of which ones we got. I mean, the the first one had the Cyclops, which is the main one. There, there's always a couple of monsters going yep. on. First one had the Cyclops. It had a dragon. And the first one had the rock as well. Oh, yes. Those were the big three. Honestly, that was that 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 dragon was a little odd. Yeah, the dragon was kind of an escape room puzzle. It was. Not. And, and if we do, the big monster versus monster fight is uh, Cyclops versus dragon. But I don't know. Yeah, th th that's not the headliner fight for this. The rock is pretty cool. The, the Cyclopses turn out to be kind of interesting characters at, at times. Yeah, they actually have the most personality of any yeah. of the, the monsters we see. But I think they really upped the game in the second movie. Yes. Which where we get monsters like the the animated ship's figurehead. Oh, yes. The animated figurehead, we've got... Um, and the Kali. The Kali figurine. That's the one I'm trying to think. That's yes. really the on iconic monster, iconic image from that movie is the animated, multi-armed, sword-wielding Kali and then our monster versus monster fight is the bad guy forces represented by the one-eyed centaur and the griffin on the good guy forces <laughs> duking it out. And this is where you get things like a uh, claymation Sinbad coming in and stabbing at, at the centaur creature and fighting it off. Yeah. That really did have a, a Pokemon, the movie three kind of vibe, didn't it? Yeah. I mean that honestly you could, uh, throw Entei in there and it wouldn't have been too weird. 
And then the uh, the third movie, well, we've got the Minotaur. We talked about the Minotaur already. Mm-hmm. We also have... What else did we have? That's the thing. And it's the most recent movie we watched, so how memorable could it have been? Um, there was the, the troglodyte yes. in this, in this, uh, valley, remote, remote valley, sort of giant caveman sort of cr- creature. And that became, a a, uh, an ally. And that was a fun character. Yeah. The giant walrus. Yes. There was the giant walrus they had to fight. And that's an interesting bit about the third movie. I have to acknowledge, we get to see Sinbad and his crew dealing with many different kinds of environments, including Arctic wastelands, and then this weird prehistoric valley hidden by the Arctic wastelands. Mm. Similodon? Was the dinosaur thingy? The the turtley thing? Oh, okay. Where 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 that was frozen in a block of ice? Guardian oh, of the Shrine. At the very end. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, they they fight that. And then they also wind up fighting the evil sorceress in the form of a giant cat. Yes. Honestly, they spent a lot more of their 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 uh their dynamation budget uh having baboon prints going on too. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of stop motion every time he was on camera. So yeah, the monster's not quite as interesting or impressive in the third movie, but yeah, they were there. They they checked that box. They checked that box. And there are always skeletons to fight. There's always skeletons to fight. The the honestly, the skeleton fight in the in the seventh voyage though is the best of the fights, I think. That, I think so. That yeah. is amazing. Yep. Cause that is that is just well done, directed. There's a lot of cool clanging and sword and shield and weapon switching and you know, moving back and forth and fun camera angles and and even apart from the blocking and the choreography, just the sculpture involved, they create such character in these skeletons. I mean, they give them expressions that pure bone would not go, are not going to have. But they make these sinister characters and villains out of these skeleton models in a way that's so much fun. The second one has a small group of skeletons, if I remember. I think that's right. But the third one's skeletons are not actually skeletons. They're more like... Yeah, they're like demons. They're skeletal, but skin-covered demons that jump out of a fire. They reminded me of the advertisement artwork of sea monkeys. (laughs) Yes, you're right. They had that, like, skin-stretched-over-skeleton kind of look to them, and that semi-aquatic head shape. (laughs) And their faces reminded me of the monsters from a movie we haven't talked about yet for the podcast. Quatermass and the Pit. Oh, I've heard of it, but I know nothing. I think the U.S. title was 50 Million Years to Earth. Okay. So that's a movie we're going to have to see. Ooh. So yeah, I I liked a lot about the monsters from the first movie, but I would probably have to give the title to the second movie because there were some really distinctive things like that Kali. The first movie wins it for me just because of that skeleton fight. Oh, that's fair enough. That's oh, yeah. worth it. And also, there's something about watching the the first Cyclops step out of the cave and go hi, and then get immediately shot with a <laughs> giant crossbow that has this like, oh. <laughs> if it isn't the consequences of my own actions, kind of feeling. And how did you feel about the effects in general? Because Harryhausen's effects were used for more than just the monsters. They were. In the third movie, in fact, they seemed... No, I shouldn't say this. In the second and third, they used it more for scenes and settings uh-huh. than they did in the first, as far as I could tell. The first one really loved its green smoke. <laughs> yes. Everything came with a side of green smoke, apparently. Ah, I'm not sure. In some ways, that all just kind of blends into the world building. The, hmm. that that's actually part of what makes it hard to distinguish these three movies in my mind because that sort of scene setting that sort of world just feel you get from from those effects is is hard to differentiate for me there were things about the third movie that in general seemed rushed to me yeah and i think they were doing some really ambitious things 
and in using Dynamation for so many of the sets and settings and trying to put you in really weird and interesting environments. But using the techniques like that, especially watching them today on a modern TV, you're going to see a lot of green and blue outlines around things when they're matted together in this way. I noticed a lot more of that in the third movie. Now, maybe that's just because they were using it more and there were more chances for me to notice, but it also might have been that they were they didn't have the time or budget to be as careful. I, I thought the effects in the first movie were all really good. I'd probably give this to the second movie because it had the right balance of ambition, what it was using the effects for, and how well it achieved them without being distracting. I can, I can understand that. You're, you talked about rushed production. There is one thing. I think that the third movie would have been better under its production title. What's that? Sinbad at the World's End. I like that. That would have been so much better than Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Especially they're sailing to the Arctic. Yeah. Why didn't they go with that? I don't know. Oh, well. So the other thing I, I tend to compare these movies on is just their tone. What was their approach to Sinbad? How, how did they want to feel? So we've got Swashbuckling Adventure. We've got... Um, I, I, the second one's kind of odd. Because he kind of stumbles into things. Hijinks. <laughs> and we've got well well known well known challenge taker. <laughs> and honestly, I guess the third works the best there. Oh, okay. Because the third one I could see more stories coming off of that. The, the, the second one has too much hubris coming down the path at him. He's going to he's going to not succeed too much and I kind of know that's coming. <laughs> the first one's swashbuckling is fun, but you have that too often and it's going to become samey. So I could actually watch more of the third version continue on if they wanted in that sense. Oh, for me it's the second. I think the the first was cool, but it was very much of its time and it wouldn't make sense trying to make more of those even 10 years later. But like the first one, the third seemed to me that he was a little bit portrayed as being a little too hyper-competent in that way. Yeah. And the second one, like in the first and the third, his um, his first mate and his crew, they always seem to have no doubt that they are— that the captain is going to lead them to victory and success and fame and fortune, and then feel terrible when some of them don't make it. The third one, there was more often, excuse me, the second one, there was more often this sense of, okay, captain, if you say so, I'm not sure this is a good idea, but you're in charge. And somehow that was a more interesting sort of character to watch and a more interesting set of relationships to watch. Yeah. And the fact that it wasn't, we were coming in in the middle of a story, like we are in all of them, the, the saga of, uh, of Captain Sinbad, and yet it wasn't Captain Sinbad is done with adventuring and ready to settle down, which is kind of how the first and third movie were. Mm, I see what you mean. So I can see there's a lot to like about that third movie, but for me, it's the second. <sighs> Any other... Things you'd like you you would want to talk about or compare these movies on. Ah, uh, there's a lot of things. These doing multiple movies at once means there's a lot we could break down. There's a lot we can work with, and this being a trilogy, I mean, I could probably, if I pulled up images, talk about the different boats pretty well. I could talk about them, like that sort of setting and setup, but. I kind of feel like we're getting towards our end questions just because I can summarize everything and I could, I want to, I, I want to be able to, I want to be able to get a clear idea going on. Cause I'm starting to, to fuzz about them. Yeah. The, there's one thing about the boats. You're right. There is, are some dramatic differences. The first movie Sinbad's ship looked like a european square rigger from a few uh, yeah. centuries after this was supposed to have been set probably because six months before the same ship had been used in a pirate movie set off the coast of spain in the 17th century so yeah it, it, that kind of took me out of the movie a little bit more of the production design was more arab and middle eastern in the the second and third movies 
with a lot of liberties being taken. A lot of liberties. <laughs> but they, not that first in ship. In the third movie, they actually do show ship ma- uh, shipmates doing ship maintenance. Yes. They actually show proper, like, what do you do when you're sailing from point A to point B? You fix the boat. You keep <laughs> fixing the boat. You paint the boat. You wash the boat. You repaint the boat. You check the boat. You paint the boat. You wash the boat. I you like don't that. don't stop. It's like, okay, I appreciate that. Yeah. Not, not quite as much sitting around and playing music and playing dice all the time until they get to port. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, hey, this is a day job. I get that. But yeah, I think you, uh, you're you right. We're headed towards our final questions. Uh, so it's movies, and we can take these separately or take them for the trilogy. Screen or no screen? Screen the trilogy. I think these are background at a party. These are background watch films. I agree. Another cool thing about the DVDs we got, they have the option to watch it with isolated score track. Uh You can watch the entire movie with none of the dialogue or sound design, only the musical score. What? Talk about a great party background. Talk about a perfect party background. You get to watch Tom Baker conjuring homunculi and and no casting context magic as to why. Just watching the cool images, listening to the orchestral score. Oh, that is brilliant! <laughs> that is absolutely so those, brilliant. That, that, that's a yeah. great feature. Yeah, so it's absolutely. They're, these are designed for that. These are background watch. If you want to get people hyped for your, you know, your tabletop and board game night, these are perfect to have <laughs> on the, the background. Yeah, you, you need you have a ridiculous amount of laundry to fold. These are perfect in the background. <laughs> it works for both. That's the sort of films these are. I would definitely say screen. Give really serious thought to that score only option. Oh yeah. And uh, next one is a little trickier. Um, revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Okay. Well, that's the thing. Like. Revive would require any of these already sequels to acknowledge the other sequels. <laughs> That's true. Revive like, means another movie in the same continuity. It's that implies that there is a continuity. continuity. Like if you want to revive, I guess what you're making is a Sinbad movie in the same style that following the tropes of its previous ones won't acknowledge the other three. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. It would be have it be have to be a Sinbad movie unconnected with the others except for a certain kind of tone and someone working to act as the successor to Schneer and uh, Harryhausen. Yeah, so a Dynamation film, it just doesn't do anything, which is cool, (laughs) but not sure if that's the same thing. Reboot, I mean, Sinbad stories are Sinbad stories. Right. There's something to that. In some ways, the sort of stories this would this told got replaced with the pirates, yeah, franchise yeah. and piratey stories in general, because that kind of you know swashbuckling adventurer that that sort of grand hero faded out and had to be revived cinematically, character wise and style wise. And I think that there's still value in it. Maybe a Sinbad narrative story would work. I just don't know if that would be anything like these anymore (laughs) and so i don't know what to say so i guess i'm saying rest in peace just because there's so many caveats attached to the other two i don't feel like i could say either of them truly i would i would have to say reboot i would be interested in a new fresh take on sinbad as a, a character of legend have some young filmmaker maybe a young filmmaker of uh of arab uh heritage bringing some more of that culture into these movies and telling these stories in an, in an interesting new way i would i would like to see more stories about sinbad but i don't want them to be attempting to be more harryhausen style sinbad stories yeah i mean apparently there was an animated sinbad movie in 2003 oh. that popped up all like it's a DreamWorks animated and it pops up every time I try to look up these three movies. So, <laughs> I did not know about that. Yeah. So apparently there's still stories being told. Cool. In that sense, which is awesome. I like that. But it was fun watching these. It and, was. Uh, I, I'd been 
I've been looking forward to these as I'm looking forward to all the different parts of, of Harryhausen months as we do them. But I knew that this as a set contained some really fun scenes, some fun characters. So I was glad to get to show these to you. I, I enjoyed and I thank you because this was when when you told me we were watching three movies, I gawked because I'm like, that's <laughs> going to be so much more watching time. That is. I mean, when we watch a TV series, we stretch it out. This was a little bit more compact that yeah. was going to throw me. But once I once I was partway through the second and I started realizing, oh, there's comparisons to do. <laughs> this, is, this is a bit more of a bracket. We can we can put these against each other. I, I saw what we were doing and I liked it. So <laughs> and I knew that that was going to throw you when we were putting on the second movie. And wait, who's this guy? Oh, that's Sinbad. That's not Sinbad. The other <laughs> clean shaven guy from 1958 was Sinbad. They are so different, and yet they're the same filmmakers' takes on it. Yeah. <sighs> so, yeah, that was fun. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. And uh, we were going to be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of, uh, of the 20th century media as we leave Harryhausen Month and move into July. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me most places as by Matthew Porter. So that's by Matthew Porter on Twitter, at... Um, uh, bymatthewporter.com and you'll find links to other places also by matthew porter on uh, youtube and ian where can people find you i can be found on twitter as item crafting on twitch as item crafting live and at itemcrafting.com and you can find the podcast on twitter as immpcast and you can find us at immproject.com that's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes including the shows that we've mentioned uh, over the course of this episode. And you'll find links to our contact page. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have a favorite Sinbad movie? Are there other Sinbad depictions that we should consider? Yeah, let, let me know how excited you are to know that the troglodyte model will return in a movie I know we're going to wind up covering at some point. <laughs> no question. And uh, you'll also find a link to our uh, Patreon, if you can support us there, that'd be wonderful. And if you do support us on Patreon, you get additional audio content every month, things that don't entirely fit in with the regular podcast feed. And if you join us on Patreon, support us at the IMMP Movie Club level, you will get a mystery DVD showing up in your mail periodically, something that would appear in a future episode of the IMMP. You ever wanted to experience what I do of getting a random new thing to watch and being able to experience it first for the first time? This is it. And you'll also find a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and t-shirts and other fun things like that. So just go to immproject.com. You'll find all of that stuff. Until then, in two weeks, uh, we will be back with, um, with more interesting old movies. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>